How do you solve problems with computers? I mean, fundamentally, how do you think about taking something that's happening in the real world and making it into something that can run inside a machine? We have a few different answers to this in our industry. One is object orientation. Think about the problem as a series of objects or creatures that have behaviors. And those objects talk to each other and trigger each other's behaviors, causing the system to move forward to the solution. That's one approach. Another popular approach is the procedural one. You think of problems as being like things that need a recipe. You break a complex problem down into simple problems. You pull the recipes off the shelf that solve those simple problems and combine them back until you've got a solution recipe for your big problem. And there are more. Those are two ways of tackling it. There are more ways of thinking about software design. And whichever of those approaches you pick, it's going to fundamentally shape the way you write software and the tools you choose and the way you think about solutions themselves. So I always think the more of those perspectives you have loaded into your brain, the more flexible a thinker you can be. And in the end, the better a problem solver you become. To that end, we're going to try and add a new perspective this week. We're going to talk about an old but new way of looking at this called event sourcing, which I would categorize as the two what's. You look at the world and you say, what happened and what does it mean? That's my summary, but it needs some more detail. So joining me this week to provide it is someone I've always had great fun chatting with, Bobby Calderwood. He's been building event-based systems and consulting on event-based design for years now. And he's going to take us through what event sourcing is, why it matters to software developers and to a business, how you do it, how you think about the world as a series of events, and how you do it well, what tools you need, and why you should add event sourcing to the list of ways in your brain you trigger when it's time to solve a problem. We have a lot to cover in this, so let's get cracking. I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices, and today's voice is Bobby Calderwood. I'm joined today by Bobby Calderwood. Bobby, how you doing, man? Good, Chris. How are you? I'm very well. Very glad to see you. It's been a while. Yeah, likewise, likewise. I, I very much enjoy coming on podcasts where you host. So I'm pleased well, to be thank here. you very much. Yeah. Thank we you. Are, so we I'm gonna pick your brains about a big um, wide topic, which you claim to be an expert on. I know you are an expert on. But we'll, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, see. The we'll see. Yeah, the, the jury's yeah. out. We'll see at the end of the podcast. So. Yeah, yeah. <clears> we'll we'll give you a final score, like um, a ballroom dancing thing. Yeah, perfect. <clears> but the topic is event sourcing, right? Which I, I got into event sourcing from a weird angle. I got into it from Elm as a front-end development tool. Oh, yeah. So my definition might be different to everyone else's, I sometimes think. So I want your... Yeah. Sure, sure. So defining event sourcing, um, Greg Young has actually written on this very recently. He's been... So Greg Young is sort of the the father of event sourcing, sort of coined the term and 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 identified the pattern. The pattern's been there in information systems management for hundreds of years, right? Like we've had this idea for a very long time, yeah. but uh, he named it, claimed it, you know, sort of, sort of built up, uh, you know, a lot of developer mind share around the idea. So kudos to Greg Young. He's, um, 
And then just recently he's tweeted out, you know, a very short text trying to, you know, get what is the essence of this thing that we call event sourcing? Because over the years, you know, a lot of stuff has grown on it, like sort of barnacles on a ship hull. Um, <laughs> but really at, at, at the core of it, um, he and, and, and others in the community, myself included, believe that it's just that system state is a reduce function over the events that have happened in that system, right? So by writing down the events, we can <clears throat> do a, a reduce or a left fold and, and come to the to the current system state. And that's really it, right? That's the whole magic of, you know, this big thing, event sourcing. Uh, it's really just that the system state is a function of the events that have happened in the system. You derive it from things that actually happened. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's that accords with our notion of um, cause and effect and the way that our, our brains uh, record narratives. Like we're very, you know, storytelling is a big part of the human condition and how we think about things. And and that's because we think about things logically. We think about, okay, this thing happened and that this other thing happened. Those two things together caused this third thing to happen. And now that's that's why we're in the state we are now, right? So that's that's kind of how our brains work. Is that true in the, you know, sort of the sense of particle physics? I don't know. You know, that's, that's a <laughs> philosophical debate we don't have to quite go into. But, but in terms of keeping track of things, in, in terms of, you know, keeping records of what's going on in our systems, of automating, you know, business processes or whatever, um, it's, it's a good enough approximation. It's a model that works. It provides something really valuable to our understanding of the causal history of some particular thing that we're interested in studying or, or interested in keeping track of. Okay, well, let's let's dive into that. Can you say it, it provides value? What value does it provide? Why should we care about event sourcing? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and sort of as we stand here at the at the dawn of the AI age, right, where where we've got these these machines that can think in terms of cause and effect and can can take the accumulated experience that they've been shown and then um, infer or, or or induce new ideas, you know, from from those past ideas. Um, our information systems more than ever need to remember what happened. Um, we got into sort of this bad habit. So the, the alternative to an event source system is sort of a, a snapshot-based system, but, you know, where we're just we've got the current state of the world, um, which is necessarily a summary of everything that happened up to this point, and then all we've got is that summary. But we haven't remembered the story. We haven't remembered how we got into that state. So it's a bit like watching a you know a football game by just taking snapshots of the of the scoreboard, right? And we're looking at the scoreboard. The scoreboard summarizes everything that's happened in the game at some level. And every time the scoreboard changes, we just sort of look at the scoreboard. Um, that would be exceptionally boring. It wouldn't give us very much rich information about what was happening in that sporting event. And, and it sort of defeats the purpose. The scoreboard's important. It captures, you know, some important summaries of what's going on in the world. But I think we'd all much rather watch the game, right? So that's... <clears throat> yeah, and there are other, like... Uh, my, my knowledge of all sports is like wafer thin. But <laughs> I'm going to try and join you on this metaphor. You get in games these days, like the amount of time a player spent in a certain zone on the pitch or something. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's something you can only do if you kept the narrative of all the things that happened and reanalyze right. it in another way. Right. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh. In in American football, so I played American football in college. Um. And in college, it's, you know, in high school, it's really fun. In college, it's sort of like a job. <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> you sit and you watch hours and hours of game film of your opponents. Um, what, really? Because, yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. So in preparation for the game, I would probably watch between 20 and 30 hours of film on this week's opponent. And the reason you do that is you see 
what types of schemes they run, what type, you know, which player you're going to be facing, what their techniques are like and so forth. So you do all of that because you're deriving something very important apart from the outcome of the game, right? We, we, these are games that were played in the past. We know who won these games, mm. but that doesn't really matter for our purposes. We've, we've taken that same information and we've repurposed it for the purpose of training ourselves to play an opponent rather than as a fan of watching the game or observing the game or whatever. So it's taking the okay. same information, right? The course of the game and repurposing that information for a new use. Same thing's true in inform- uh, event source information systems. You can start with sort of what you think the information is, the, the information system is supposed to be, uh, or maybe it's transaction processing role. And you <clears throat> capture all the information that happens in the course of transaction processing. And then all of a sudden it occurs to you or it occurs to some smart product person like, hey, we can use that same information and derive new value from it. Just like your new statistics, right? How much time a person spent yeah. in zone or how much, you know, how many shots they took on goal or whatever other statistic we want to summarize apart from the score that's captured on the scoreboard. You have all that information so you can come to those new conclusions. You can derive those new insights from uh, from those events, the, those event data, which you can't in a, in a snapshot-based system. That information's lost, irrevocably lost. It's gone forever. And you made that choice. You made the choice to lose that information by doing a snapshot-based system instead of an event source system. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I often think uh, the kind of poster child for this is, um, like, without wishing to criticize, object orientation is based around the idea that you have a state, stuff happens, you react to it, but you forget it. That's right. That's right. And right. You, you destructively mutate that state. And now whatever it was before is gone. And... Within a, uh, within a single process space, like a single memory space in a program, that becomes really gnarly when it comes to sort of concurrent programming and uh, parallelization, where it's like two different threads could be looking at that thing, and all of a sudden it's something different. And now it's like, well, everything, all the work that I've done up to this point is meaningless because somebody changed what I was looking at kind of thing. So that becomes really difficult within a process space. But zooming out from that to sort of the broader enterprise information context, when I'm a business... And I've forgotten everything that happened right up until the, the present moment. And all I have is sort of like, here's where we're at now. How do I reason about the, the future? How do I extrapolate from my past experience and try to predict what's going to happen? So both from a sort of process perspective, you know, with object orientation and some of these other practices, as well as from sort of an information management, information systems perspective at the business value level, you're sort of losing stuff all the way down. So it's like this cascade of, of lost value by not hanging on to these things, you know, hanging on to what's happened in the past. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I kind of think um, one of the places where we've we've always remembered this is probably finance because they have the regular, the auditors drop in at the end of the year and say, what's your past stream of events? They don't phrase that's it a, that way, but that's the yeah. question they're asking. <laughs> well, sometimes they phrase it a little more aggressively. Like if your yeah. current account balances aren't in harmony with what's happened over the course of the year with these transactions, somebody's going to go to prison or get fined <laughs> a lot of money or whatever. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but no, but that, that's exactly right. Right. We have to be able to justify, you know, why is the account balance this or why did we assess this much interest on this loan and you have to be able to go back and justify it. Well, we assess this much interest because the balance was this at this point in time. And so you have to be able to point to the past to justify the present, which is, which is common in all human endeavor, right? We always sort of have to keep track of those sorts of things. Certainly in finance. Um, I mean, 
double entry bookkeeping has been around since like the 1400s. So, you know, we've been doing this for a very long time yeah, where we say, yeah. oh, record the facts. Okay. Now derive new facts from those original facts that, you know, that's something that we've done in finance for a very long time. So I think the finance world is sort of in good habits around that. What I learned though, when I was in the finance world, I was working at Capital One for a lot of years. Um, <clears throat> there's a bit of domain blindness going on there. So within the, the very specific, you know, domain of, of the financial ledger, the, you know, kind of the core banking systems, yeah. everyone was very disciplined about keeping history and making sure that we could audit everything and all that. And then sort of in every other domain in the company, right? What our customers' addresses were, eh, just throw away <laughs> everything, just keep their current address. It's like, well, come on, you can't like, you know, so, so there, there is a bit of this domain blindness where it's like, when it comes to one particular domain, we see the value of event sourcing. But then we go build another information system that's sort of outside of that core financial domain. And it's like, ah, just crud is good enough. Keep current state, throw everything else out kind of thing. So. Why do you think that is? Is it, <laughs> and I mean, let you speculate, actually. <laughs> I have no idea. I, uh, domain blindness is, is very common. And I think the, you know, from the, from the dawn of the computer age, uh, everything was so expensive. Everything was so cost prohibitive that we wanted to keep our, um, programs efficient. We wanted to keep the, the disk space that we required really low. Um, certain information systems, you know, mainframes and other, other types of systems um, embedded those sort of cost-oriented assumptions. And so I think it's just a developer experience thing. I think that's just the habit that we've gotten into as developers is, yeah, let's just mutatively sort of in place, mutate these data structures and just keep the, the summary of what's going on. And, you know, maybe we'll keep some of that other stuff around, but we'll keep it in a non- core non-system of record place you know we'll stream it somewhere in a log file somewhere yeah, that's right. we'll yeah. stream it in splunk with our application logs or, or our analytics or whatever but yeah it, it's sort of not in the core domain and, and i think the purpose of event sourcing is sort of you know flag that idea say hey well, you know we've been keeping records for most of human history in this history preserving event sourcing kind of way we bailed out on that, you know, from like 1960 to 1995, you know, and now we're, we're trying to like, or maybe I'm generous. Maybe it's like 2015. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we, we sort of bailed on that idea and we're really focused on <clears throat> minimizing disk usage and, you know, just keeping what we absolutely needed to keep. Um, and now we're getting back to the point where it's like, Hey, disks are free, right? We can just keep all the information around, but that's going to re require sort of a, a paradigm shift of, of this you know, several generations worth of developers habits and, and impulses and inclinations to change, yeah. to make event sourcing the default, like it probably should be instead of the exception. I always think, I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a learning curve to go back and forward to doing it the old and new way. Right. Sure. Sure. I always yeah, think developers <clears throat> will, sorry, go on. Oh no, please. I always think developers will pay that learning curve cost if they see the value. That's right. And you could argue that maybe we just need event sourcing in finance because there's the value of it is so obvious and so high, especially when the auditors come knocking on your door and maybe the Sorry. IRS and uh, the FBI. <laughs> sure, sure. But is does it have value in other domains? Can you, yeah. do you have any like examples where it's worth yeah, the absolutely. effort right now? Absolutely. So, you know, anywhere where you can imagine <clears throat> deriving new facts from the facts you've already captured. <clears throat> so, you know, the, the, the primary domain, you know, the, sort of the, the transaction processing uh, state, sometimes people call that like the aggregate or the aggregate root, right? This is the, the thing that you use while doing the sort of transaction processing stuff. If you can think of deriving 
other conclusions besides that that sort of transaction processing uh, state from your set of events, there's definitely latent value there that you're missing. So think about the the aggregate route as like the scoreboard of your of your football game. Um, yeah. The events is the stuff that happens in the football game. If, if there are other things that you think you can derive value from other than just the score of the game, then there absolutely is uh, is value in event sourcing, right? So we've already identified some in our sports metaphor. We've got sort of these alternative <laughs> statistics that are useful and interesting to sports geeks. And then there's also the value of observing that game to prepare to face that opponent, right? So there's already sort of these two different domains outside of just the scoreboard and who won the game, uh, where where the, the events of that game are interesting and have value um, in that sports metaphor. So taking that to other sort of business domains, like, yeah, absolutely. I, I really can't, I would struggle to think of one where I couldn't derive new facts from <laughs> the work that I do or, or, or the things that I write down as events in the course of automating a business process. Um, there's sort of two that obviously jump to mind. You know, one is analytics, right? We've talked about that a little bit. It's kind of like yeah. your statistics, you know, hey, hey, there's a, a statistics that we can derive from what's going on that are interesting apart from the, the results or the outcome. Um, there's something interesting about the process that maybe we can do process improvement. Maybe we can do um, better in the customer journey. You know, hey, there's a hot spot here where the where something is happening over and over and over again, and maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe we can smooth that part of the process out, right? So there's a lot of sort of analytics we can do on that kind of stuff. Yeah, so you always see that I, in like online sales where job yeah. one is to actually capture the sale and process it. That's but then right. As soon as you've right. got any success in that, the marketing department want to know, well, what's stopping us getting more sales? That's right. Re reduce no. friction. Where's the next friction point? Absolutely. Yeah. So all of yeah. that really, and, and we've gotten in this bad habit in, in software of, separating out the analytics from the work that's actually being done in the information system. You know, they're two different systems and you have to do them differently in the code. You've got to have your analytics layer that's just writing these sort of events out. And then you've got to do the actual real work of the transaction <laughs> yeah, processing. Yeah. But it's like, why would you do that when you could just do all of it by storing the business events, right? So that, yeah. that's one area. So about that, I would liken to sort of these alternative statistics, right? Uh, shots on different ways of time just viewing. Zone. Reading yeah. the changes, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The other one is one that I'll more liken to sort of um, preparing to face that opponent by watching game film, and that's training um, AI agents, right? We were future opponents to that, that team that we were watching on film, and we were training ourselves by exposing ourselves to how you know they were going about their process. We could anticipate them, or we could tell what kind of plays they were going to run and what type of situation, that sort of thing. So we were training ourselves on that data. We can do the same thing with automated agents now where you say, hey, we've got all this event data. It tells a very clear story. It's this sort of mostly structured, uh, you know, say JSON or whatever kind of data. Let's train up an automated agent and see if it can reduce friction or see if it can do some, you know, magic where it can build a conversational interface on top of our existing user interface or whatever. I mean, there's the, the sky's really the limit on sort of training these automated agents on your event data, um, which you just simply can't do with a succession of snapshots of the scoreboard. You just can't do it. Yeah, or stuff simply, <clears throat> simple stuff, not quite as glamorous, but very useful of like suddenly all <clears throat> our customers are searching for, I don't know, a blue hat with a feather in it. Um, and if we could react to that quickly before we yeah. hear in the news a week later that That's some right. star is wearing that particular kind of hat, you can see yeah. you know, pulling being, the signal out of the noise. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, reacting to the leading edge of what's happening. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, benefits that way. The other benefit that is sometimes hidden um, because we get really excited about the analytics and we get excited about you know, the friction, friction reducing. We get excited about the machine learning and AI stuff. Um, the other one is a little more pedantic, but but still very costly for enterprises. And that's just system integration, right? When you have uh, a system that's recording everything that it's doing, you can create a really loose coupling integration with that system by simply just observing what it's writing down, right? It's okay. We're just observing the events that they're writing passively. We're not interacting with that system. We're not issuing it commands to change the state, whatever. We're just seeing what it's doing. And then downstream, we can do all sorts of different stuff. We can create new projections of state. We can um, kick off some process. We can uh, sort of issue a trigger to, you know, hey, this user um, bailed out on a cart. You know, they, they put a bunch of stuff in their shopping cart, but then never checked out. Let's kick off an email and send that email to them saying, hey, did you forget something? You know, the, the, that sort of thing. So there's all this sort of systems integration stuff where, where your systems become much more easily extensible and, and more loosely coupled the more you employ this pattern throughout your information systems. Because you're making the events available. And that re that relates to one of my like mottos, which is the least coupled two things can be is just with data. That's right. That's right. right. That's, yeah, that's just, the maximum decoupling point is just information. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's sort of a bit of a decoupling um, reuse paradigm. I don't know exactly how they're proportional, but um, everyone talks about reuse. Like, hey, let's reuse this. Let's reuse this. Um, reuse is good, but it depends on what you mean by reuse, right? Are you talking about reusing the same class or the same interface in your, in your code architecture? Or are you talking about reusing the same um, business occurrence? to generate additional business value. I think the latter form of reuse is, is infinitely more valuable than reusing my interface in my class uh, or, you know, in, in my code architecture. Right. But we, we focus a ton on reuse at the code level and we don't focus much on reuse at the data level. Like, Hey, let's just, let's just see what business value we're generating in the course of these information systems and, and multiply that and reuse that and keep, you know, deriving value upon value there yeah. That's going to produce a lot more for the bottom line than like, oh, yeah, I was able to, you know, dry up my function and only have two function implementations instead of three. And you're like, OK, that you know, that doesn't really <laughs> matter. Right. In the macro scale, like that's not saving a ton of money or generating new value, whereas the sort of reuse at the at the business data level absolutely is. Yeah. And we should have I feel like we understood <clears throat> that at one point in our history and we lost it because I'm sure Edgar Codd had figured that out back in the IBM days when he was deriving SQL, right? Yeah. Relational yeah. data, make the data accessible without assuming how people will use it. That's exactly right. Well, and, mm. and that brings us to sort of the, the last really interesting aspect of this, uh, this idea of event sourcing as being system state as a function of all the stuff that happens in the system, um, which is that there's no real query language. There's, there's no sort of imposed usage pattern <clears throat> by by storing the events, you can sort of build your own query language of just the different functions that reduce over those events to come up with new things. And we've already touched on this briefly. Like you'll almost always have one that's sort of the official store. That's the transaction processing state. That's the one that's making sure everything's consistent and we're doing our jobs right and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then there's, there's an infinite number of other functions that can operate on that same sequence of events and derive new facts and new conclusions or recommend things to do next or whatever, right? That there's, there's sort of a, a whole bunch of functions in that, in that space, that domain space where 
you can derive new things. And, and it almost becomes its own query language, right? So in event sourcing, there's not really a query language necessarily. It's just a function of the, of the stuff that's happened in the system. Yeah. Um, big old basket full of folds. Yeah. All the folds. <laughs> all the folds. <laughs> so we're getting into this. Um, you, we are beginning to imply certain architectures and certain technology choices. I can feel you almost about to say public immutable log. Um, things like, how do we, if you like this idea and you want to start implementing it, what are the technological choices you make? Yeah, and that's a great question because that there's there's you know every few months a blog post comes out saying like event sourcing's hard or you can't do it you know with your current <laughs> tech stack or you can't do it on Kafka or you can't do it with X or whatever and it's like it's such a simple idea like you can really do event sourcing with a file on disk right you just append to the file like that you know and at some level that's how kafka and systems like it work it's just like okay it's a append only file and we've got a uh, nio file handle to that thing and we just sort of you know append new stuff to it and flush yeah. it to disk and all that kind of stuff but um so you really can do that right if you if you are smart about how you structure your code the repository where you store your events is sort of maybe the least interesting thing about like what you're doing, right? You can store it in a flat file on disk. You can store it um, in a relational database. You can, you know, there, there's a lot of different sort of ways and techniques you can use um, to store these things. Uh, but, but all these sort of event stores have to have a set of characteristics in common, right? You have to, there's sort of a, you must be this tall in order to be an event store sort of idea. Right. Um, and that is, you know, you have to be able to, it should be immutable. You, you you touched on one of those things, right? Your your log of events should be immutable. Um, but there's also this sort of idea of um, I need to be able to see the events that are in there already before I write the next one, uh, because I want to make sure that you know I don't double write an event, for example. You know, I, I got to guard against certain of these sort of um, distributed systems uh, problems, right? Where we've got two writes of the same information in there. And now you've got extra events that downstream you have to sort of filter out or whatever. So there, there's sort of that idea of, uh, I want to make sure that the world hasn't moved on from where I thought it was when I issued the command to, to write these events down. So uh, there's techniques like optimistic concurrency control that allow for that, where you can tell your event store, you know, a good event store will have this API or this sort of characteristic built into it where it's like, hey, um, write this event down provided the world hasn't moved on from from the last time i read right that gives you this this ability to say you know read my events as of you know this point in time right as of you know event number 55 read those events build your state show the user the state based on those events the user makes a decision issues a command in, in response to that command, you say, okay, now we're going to append some events into the world, but some other user somewhere else may have already seen that state and issued a, a similar or a, or a, you know, contravening command. And so you want to be able, before you write any events down, you want to be able to look in there and say like, Hey, has the world moved on? If not, you know, succeed to, and, and write the event. If the world has moved on, fail the write, alert the user, tell them, Hey, the world's moved on. You might want to reconsider what you were about to do. I can see how you build a system that way, but I'm going to have to challenge you on this because absolutely isn't the event sourcing way to say, well, user A said do this, user B said do that. We record both of them, and then it's the fold that makes that decision. What that means? Um, maybe 
Maybe. Maybe. So um, <laughs> by having, yeah, the, the, the classic engineering answer is it depends. Um, hmm. And and it depends on what you want to do. If you, if, if, if your domain says that both of those inputs are equally valid and, and we need to sort it out after the fact, like certain CRDTs like uh, uh, auto merge do exactly that auto merge with all of its fanciness. It, it's an amazing piece of technology. It's just an event log at the bottom, right? You're just writing these events down and it's clever about how it, um, sequences those events that come in um, uh, concurrently from different actors. And then just as you said, the fold, which actually produces the current value uh, or, or that converges the current values that everyone sees the same value given the same log, uh, the fold sorts that out. And you can either have multi-valued fields where it could be this or it could be that, or you just say last one in wins or whatever, right? You, you can sort of tell that fold function how you want to resolve that. Um, so yeah. certain types of event source systems do that. But uh, in other types of systems, you want to say like, you know, no, there needs to be some level of sort of, um, uh, uh, I don't want to proceed if things have moved on, right? If 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 the world's moved on from, from a certain point, I want you to fail that out. And so in, in a good event sourced uh, or event sourcing event store, it'll just give you the option, not the obligation, but the option to use this sort of optimistic concurrency control setting and say, hey, if if this particular event stream has moved on past, you know, this offset, uh, fail the right and we'll try again. Uh, and, and that gives you lots of different ways to sort of retry until that thing succeeds or, right, it just gives you the option. You can just do fire and forget, you know, just capture all the events and then figure it out in the fold. Or you can say like, no, we need to be more careful than that. We need to be more consistent than that and, and you know, stop the world a little bit. I'm. Can you give me an example of where both are good? Because I'm kind of leaning towards the the capture both, mm -hmm. so that we can one day have an analysis process that says, do you know what? We've got a lot of concurrent users trying to edit the same document in this, yeah. and that's the fact that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you're sort of alluded to the the classic use case for keeping both is concurrent document editing, right? If I if I'm building a Google Docs like thing where I'm you know trying to you know changes coming in thick and fast and we need to just sort of like capture them all and figure it out later like that that's great that you know for, for systems that are highly concurrent you know lots of of edits and changes coming in really fast um that idea of sort of perpetual reconciliation and just you know capture everything and then reconcile it after the fact that's definitely the right solution there for a lot of um <clears throat> like enterprise line of business applications that change more gradually and the consistency is more important than the availability, right? So in, in editing, availability is paramount, right? We just want to accept everyone's edits and everyone, you know, we don't want anyone sitting there with a, a spinner on their document because <laughs> that makes them really frustrated. It's a terrible user experience, right? So, yeah. so that's why sort of accepting all those changes and figuring it out after the fact is sort of the right use case in, in editing case. But for things like um, a, a financial ledger or whatever, you know, making sure that the same transaction doesn't come in twice because someone kicked out the power cord. And we, you know, we just have to be a little more consistent than that. We have to make sure that we don't double charge someone's credit card. We make sure, you know what I mean? So like, that's yeah. the, 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 that's the, the sort of things that happen and have an immediate adverse user effect. And then if we sort it out later, we can give their money back, but it's like, Hey, sorry, you, you already drew my, you already overdrew my account and now I can't afford diapers. Like, you know, that's not a great <laughs> user outcome for that person. So being able, you know, having this ability to sort of introspect on the log and say, so long as the world hasn't moved on from here, I know that what I last showed the user is the current state of the world. Um, and so that they're making a decision with the latest and best information possible. 
and then they write and and then someone else comes in does the same thing they see a view of the world it's consistent at the time that they read it and at the time that they try to write something else down <clears throat> they have you know the system has at least the option to say yeah you know we only want to commit to this decision if that information that we showed the user was the very latest possible information and nothing's happened in the meantime yeah yeah okay um, so does that imply a certain tech stack, though? Uh, I'm trying to make you commit here. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, 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 I'm, and I'm trying to, to be the consummate engineer and be like, I don't know, it depends. But yes, yeah. it does, it does okay. imply Give a particular tech stack. Give me a menu no, of sorry. things that sit nicely. <laughs> so the original, sort of the original um, category, or the, the original system in this category of like event sourcing event stores um, is Event Store DB. It was started by Greg Young back in kind of... Uh, 2012, 2013 timeframe. Great product. Um, now it's a company event store. Um, I'm friends with the management team over there. Uh, CEO is a really great guy. So um, a really good uh, event store. It's written in .NET. They've got clients in a lot of different languages. And it, it was sort of the first one to say, you know, to, to offer this sort of data model around uh, streams of events. And then this optimistic concurrency idea of saying like, okay, for this particular stream, succeed if it hasn't moved on, fail if it has moved on. And, you know, that gives you that kind of um, optimistic concurrency control guarantee. They also have another really neat aspect of their data model, which is um, the idea of like an entity or a subject in the stream. So if you've got a big, um, you know, information system, uh, so, so for example, like Autonomo, which is the uh, little toy information system we built for the Confluent course, it's sort of this... Uh, uh, autonomous vehicle ride sharing thing where okay i'm an okay. owner of the of this really cool you know autonomous vehicle i park it in my parking lot uh you know to go to work but i don't want to just sit there baking in the hot sun i want it to go make me some money so it it drives itself off and goes and picks up you know kind of ride sharing like riders who you know, request a ride and then the system schedules it for them and then they get in the car and it drives them to their place and they, they get up um so it, it's that kind of a system when you've got um you know a lot of those uh, coming in, there's lots of different rides and there's lots of different vehicles. And if system state is a function of all the events that have happened in that system, to find the state of any particular ride, you'd have to like replay all the events for every ride that's ever happened. And that's sort of prohibitive, right? That's, that's right, not yeah. going to be performant. It's going to, you know, you're going to have lots of, lots of issues there. So the ability to sort of filter the event stream and say, I only care about events about this one particular ride. I'm just tracking the history of this ride because I want to figure out if it's got scheduled yet or if it's dropped off its user yet or whatever. You know, I want to be able to display in that user's uh, app, you know, your driver's going to pick you up in five minutes or whatever. You know, I want to be able to display the current state of the ride somewhere. You don't want to have to reduce over every event that's ever happened for all rides ever. Uh, you want to just focus in on that. So that's what these... Um, what we call fine-grained streams are good for. You can say, hey, I'm going to write to this named stream, you know, rides. These are all the events about the rides in the system. Yeah. But I'm going to indicate that this event is for ride, you know, one, two, three, four, five, whatever. Um, that will aggregate back up to the rides event. So it'll show up in the overall stream of all events. But it'll also allow me to say, like, you know, I just want to see the streams about this ride really quickly reduce over the five events that have happened to that ride and figure out where it is in its process rather than the 5 million events uh, for all rides ever. So um, that, that notion of sort of fine-grained stream is, is important. How's that implemented? Is that just indexing the events as they come in? Yeah, and, and really what an event store is doing is just a write-ahead log of, of events 
and then you build these sort of this index of streams on top of uh, on top of that, right? So really, an event store is an event store system in its own right. It's kind of got its own little uh, right ahead log of the transactions that have come in, and it's got the, the set of indexes built up around stream and subject. Um, event store DB builds several other projections around event type, so you can actually just see all the events of a particular type in total order and all those things. So uh, okay. you, you can view it and slice it and dice it a, a couple of different ways. Um, so yeah, that's sort of the first system of its class. There's several other in in that category, kind of along with Evident DB or Event Store DB. Um, I, I just I just spilled the beans. We actually, uh, my company Evident <laughs> Systems, has just written one that's very similar. It was inspired by uh, Event Store DB, inspired by a database that I worked with a long time ago called Datomic, um, a couple of other systems, and it's basically uh, solving the problem that a lot of bloggers have pointed out where it's like, hey, you can't use Kafka for event sourcing, right? So when people say that, what they're saying is, yes, Kafka is a durable, immutable log, but because it doesn't have these characteristics like uh, the ability to look at a stream of events or the ability to fail a write, you know, in that optimistic concurrency control way, if there's already an event on the stream, right? Because Kafka is so eventually consistent in how it sort of... Um, processes those events with the producer and consumer um a lot of people have have stumbled they've tried to use kafka as their event log ran into a few places where this sort of eventual consistency was not okay for their use case and they're like oh, we can't do it it's it's impossible it's not the right thing um, can you give me an example yeah so um one of the classic APIs in an event store is look up an event by its ID, right? I wrote this event down last Tuesday. I kept its ID around someplace. I would like to see that event, please. Uh, Kafka just can't do that, right? You'd have to spin up a consumer, you know, scan through consume the over the course of, of all the events that have come in, identify the one with the ID, write it down someplace and, and go on, right? So that's uh, doing a, a full scan like that every time is just not performant. It's not, you know, the best sort of developer experience. It takes a lot of sort of distributed systems complexity to do a very simple job. Um, so that's one. And Event Store DB can do that. Our product, Evident DB, can do that. You can just say, hey, show me this event and it'll pull it from the index, this particular event, or show me all the events on this stream. Easy. Show me all the events on the stream for this particular subject. Easy. And you just get back those things. So it's really those indexes on there that that set events Event Store DB, Evident DB, some of the other event stores apart from Kafka. Uh, where Evident DB is a little different, we sit on top of Kafka. So we're actually writing down all of our data to Kafka. It's all uh, a big, complex Kafka Streams app. And we're you know writing down our, our batches of transactions to Kafka as a log. And then we're building those indexes to make it really performant to query um, you know, where the database is uh, in, in terms of that thing. And then we also provide that optimistic concurrency control API that Event Store DB also does, which is, hey, you know, when you go to write, check those indexes, make sure that the world hasn't moved on, and then only succeed if if the if the database is in the state we expect it to be in. Right. So what we're saying really there is for an event sourcing system, you would like let's not try and say anything too definitive about the entire industry. <laughs> for an event storing system, you would like yeah. some kind of reliable uh write ahead log. Yes. Plus yep. some kind of mid-tier state manager that's really building indexes as a kind yep. of um what's the word I'm looking for? Uh state you can access on the way between yep. an intermediary state. Intermediate state that's that's uh 
got the right operational characteristics to be able to query it quickly and cache it and all those sorts of things. Yep. And then combining those two things at right time, I want to be able to consult those indexes before I commit a write to the write ahead log. So it's, yeah, it, putting all those things together. It's the write ahead log of transactions. It's the indexes built on top of those transactions. And then it's the ability to say, to fail a write in a, in a, in a perfectly consistent way, a linearizably consistent way, fail a write to that write ahead log if the indexes aren't in the state that the, that the writer expects. Right. Is there a particular set of indexes you always create, or is it like custom defined, or both? So, is, is it like a default so, menu of indexes <laughs> plus you can custom define? Yeah, no. So that, that that's an excellent question, and, and it's sort of an interesting. Um, it's a little bit of an interesting uh, uh, like database theory question, right? Like, Good. so a relational <laughs> database. Yeah, that's right. So a relational database has a write ahead log, and it has a set of indexes that it maintains on top of that write ahead log. And then it has a query language for writes and reads that ensures that the log is in the state that is consistent with those indexes, that consistent with the um, the writer or the, or the user's expectations, right? So very similar type of system. And uh, different indexes build, or sorry, different databases build different indexes depending on configuration and user preference and, and all those things, right? I can tell Postgres to build me an index on this column on this table. So that's really fast. I don't have to do a scan of that table to find the thing I'm looking for. I can just say, here, when it's equal to this, I can pull out that record. So um, it, it's much more complex in the relational world. And there's tons of math that like, I don't understand that you know, governs how those things come into being and how you can um, elevate certain query clauses to make the queries more performant. I mean, there's just tons of really excellent work done in the relational world to, to make yeah. that a performant thing. In the event world, it's like, a lot simpler, which is why I felt, oh yeah, I could probably build this. You know, it, <laughs> trying to build a relational database, I'm like, forget about it. I'm not enough. I'm not a good enough engineer to like even tackle that. But in the event world, um, it's rather simple. So the schema that we use for our events is an open standard called Cloud Events. Um, Cloud, Cloud Events is great. Okay. Yeah, cl CloudEvents.io. It's really great. Um, open. I think it's a Cloud Native Computing Foundation standard. I can't remember exactly, but it's. Um, it's a standard that's been adopted by a lot of the, the vendors. And, and it's a very simple schema. And, and the, the way they've managed their standards process is really great. Like it's, they've got a very well-worded standard and, and it's very simple. But the idea is, you know, each event has, has a schema. And so there's certain fields that we can count on being there, right? Any of the required fields in that cloud event, we know have to be in there. So all of our events in EvidentDB that we write down are cloud events. So we can count on the presence of, of certain fields being there. And then there's a, another field, which is optional, which is subject, which is exactly that sort of fine-grained stream. It's that entity identifier that says, this event is about this thing. Um, and that allows us to build a subject-based uh, identifier. There's also a bitemporal um, extension field on uh, on cloud oh, events okay. where you can say, you know, effective date, I think is what it's called, or something like that. But it, there's some sort of field that allows you to say, I know this event came in this order, but really we want to think of it as, as if it had occurred, you know, last Tuesday or, or this morning at 9 a.m. or whatever. Like when you're um, so backdating you can... a deposit. That's right. Backdating a deposit is a great example. Um, a, a lot of banking use cases rely on this sort of trickeration to say like, yeah, these events, you know, these transactions came in in this order, but we're going to fudge it a little bit and shuffle them around so that we can <laughs> come, come up with a better customer outcome. They actually do this in favor of the customer more often than uh, in favor of the bank. 
because they're forced to by the government, <laughs> they, <laughs> they, uh, you know, if certain uh, transactions would come in in a way that would cause multiple um, overdrafts, for example, they resequence them so that only one overdraft will happen. Or at least they're supposed to. It depends on the bank you go to most of the time. But um, <laughs> they're supposed to uh, uh, process those transactions in such a way that it will minimize the number of overdraft fees that the customers hit with. So if right. I, you know, write a check and it overdraws my account, and then I make a deposit, and then another thing hits, and I make another deposit, you know, it will have overdrawn me two or three times in there. It'll say like. No, put all the deposits first and then put all the debits second and then we'll see where we're at and, and see if, yeah, they if there's any reality these. in which this wouldn't have occurred. <laughs> that's uh, right. Occurred that's right. Yeah, that's the way yep, you have yep. to pretend actually happened. That's right. Exactly. So so that bi-temporality becomes really useful. So in EvidentDB, <clears throat> we build um, a stream index. So, you know, what what type of event is it? You know, or, or you know, what bounded context is this event coming in you know so in our autonomous example there's sort of a stream that's about vehicles right this is people registering their vehicles for the service making their vehicles available requesting the return of their vehicles that sort of thing and then there's a a, a stream that's about rides which is you know ride, ride got requested the ride was scheduled by the system the rider got picked up the rider got dropped off all that kind of thing so two separate streams of events and we uh we index on those streams so that you can say like, okay, here's the total order of the, just the events in this stream. We maintain a total order of all the events per namespace. So, so we're multi-tenant. We, we allow for many database kind of namespaces within our uh, system. Okay. And all of those, uh, all the events within a particular database namespace are totally ordered and we maintain a, a total order on those things. Uh, but then also you can sort of drop down into a particular stream and say, hey, just show me this particular stream. And then within that stream, we can say, hey, just show me the events about this particular subject. And then you can totally order them per subject. You can even, if you get clever, you can do that across streams and things too. So um, yeah, so really stream, subject, and then bitemporal indexing. Those are kind of the big ones. There are a handful of others. Uh, so each event has a type. So you can, if you want, build an event index on type. I don't know how useful that is. Um, event store DB has that. I don't know what anyone uses it for in event store DB, but they have it, and I'm sure they have it for a reason. And I'm sure some customer at some point asked for that, right? So um, you can, you know, index the events or, or look them up by type and that sort of thing. So yeah, that, that's that's really the the main API though. Is is really I'm going to transact a batch of it, uh, of events. And I can specify sort of constraints on those events. And if all those constraints hold, the whole batch goes in. If any of those constraints are violated, the whole batch fails. So you get that sort of atomic level right of multiple events right. at once, yep. um, which is actually something EvidentDB has that uh, Event Store does not have. Event Store is one event at a time um, that you can write in. So we, we have the ability to sort of atomically transact batches of events in uh, or not, depending on those constraints, those OCC constraints. So that's kind of the write API, and that's it. That's the only write API. And then the read API is, you know, pull me a stream or pull me a stream for a subject or pull me a stream for a subject in a bitemporal uh, reordered kind of way. So that's that's how we uh, we provide those APIs to the end user. Um, very straightforward. It allows for reasoning about the system at a particular point in time. Um, we're, we're able to do a ton of caching in our clients uh, for doing that sort of thing. Okay. Um, we have a unique sort of feature in our database that uh, in the client 
very much like Datomic. So Datomic had this really awesome notion, uh, one of Rich Hickey's best ideas. Uh, and that's saying a lot because he had a lot of really great he had ideas. Great. Yep. Yeah. But one of his best ideas was the idea of, of the database as a value. So there's sort of the, the operational part of a database, which is the thing that you write against. And that's sort of the connection. That thing's stateful. It's like, you know, got network stuff in it. And you're, you're talking to this thing that's a machine. And it's, you know, going through a, a succession of states over time, right? So there's the connection, and that's kind of the stateful machine bit. But then you ask the connection for a database value. You say, hey, you know, show me the database as of this point in time, or show me the latest that you have access to, or whatever. And then you get a database value back. And that, that database value has true value semantics. So no matter what happens, you know, writes can keep going into that database, you know, as much as they want, thick and fast, but that database value maintains its consistent point in time view. So you say like, once I've asked it for this database, every time I ask it for some stream or for uh, some subject or whatever, it's always going to give me back the same answer. So you can use these database values in functions, in functional programming, because it has value semantics rather than reference semantics that are going to point to some changeable thing or for the sake of listeners that aren't quite the closure fans that you and i are yeah yeah yeah. why don't you define what you mean by true value semantics for a database yeah yeah so value semantics means that it's a it's a value like the number 42 or uh you know, some immutable map or something where that where it's stable over time so one of the key constraints in functional programming is if you call uh, it's called referential transparency. If you call a function with two arguments or, or, or with an argument multiple times, it should always give you the same answer, right? So if it's a true function in the mathematical sense, if you pass it um, arguments that are the same, you should always get the same answer, uh, you know, out the back end. Um, there are exceptions, of course, like you have to have random number generators and some other types of things. But um, really, you should be building most of your programs up out of these pure functions because they're very easy to reason about. You don't have to think about change and when things change and concurrency or whatever if you have pure values and you're just passing those values to functions and always getting the same answers back it just becomes really easy to reason about your system and test it and, and all that so that's one of the big virtues of functional programming you introduce databases into the mix and everything becomes complicated now you have to have monads all over your program because it's like <laughs> i don't know everything can change at any point and so i have to just hedge through my whole program uh, if you have a database that provides you value semantics you can take that database value, and even though under the hood it's composed of references and it's referencing out to these other places, um, it's stable, and so it doesn't change over time. You know, regardless of what happens to the database, more transactions are hitting it or whatever, that database value is what it is, and it'll always return you the same results when you ask it questions. So you can pass that <clears throat> database to a function and sort of always get that the same answers again. So it, so it participates in, in pure functional programming in a much nicer way than these nasty stateful, you know, machines that you have to wrap in all kinds of monads and stuff to make sure that you're. So pure. by treating the database as a pure value, you get things like, um, consistent queries. Yep. Across consistent the database queries. for free. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And there's a, a, in this type of database, because it's all made out of events, there's tons of cacheability in there. So, right. When I have a database value, you know, when I first get that from, from the connection, there's probably a lot of network activity. I'm, I'm downloading all the events and make sure, but now they're all cached. And so now as I'm asking it questions, it feels like it's inside of my program. It doesn't feel like I'm talking to something way over there across a wire. It feels like everything's right here <clears throat> in my hands. So now we can think of this thing, not as 
you know, the stateful connection inter intermediated by this, you know, stateful protocol, but something that's present, something that's in, in my program in a much deeper sense than if you're dealing with an ORM or if you're dealing with, you know, executing SQL queries and getting back these big data sets. And, you know, you have to sort of be really conscientious about when you ask for that data set. Because sometimes with SQL stuff and ORMs, if you ask the same question twice, it'll give you two different answers because the database yeah. will have changed under the hood and there's mechanisms for letting that ORM thing know in memory. So yeah, there's a lot of complexity built into these sort of interactions around databases. We're trying to simplify that out and say, hey, let's simplify the whole notion of a database down to just the things that happened and then some indexes on top of those things. And then let's simplify the interaction with the database so that we have value semantics in memory so we can you know, use these things in functions so we can ask it questions and always get the same answer, right? So we're really trying to sort of really dramatically simplify it down, push that complexity out to the edges to be handled by the platform or the system itself and not to burden the developer with all the crazy distributed system stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of clever stuff going on under the hood, but at the, at the programmer level, let's try and make it look just like a series of values. Exactly. Which yep, is nice exactly. to program with. Are yeah. we are we implying that in order to do event sourcing or to do it well, you have to get into functional programming? No. And in fact, the um, I, I, like you, sort of came to event sourcing um, from a weird angle. <laughs> Most <laughs> of the event sourcing thought, you know, from Greg Young through the sort of domain-driven design community taking it over, um, has come from an object-oriented perspective, right? People talk about aggregates as if they were objects. People talk about, you know, sagas and, and you know, uh, projections and commands and events and stuff it, as if it was sort of this object hierarchy of things. Um, and that's fine, right? If that's your, your style of programming, I, I think that works. There's been a lot of really good thought put into that stuff. But functional programming, again, I'm, I'm not a great engineer. So all that stuff is too complex for me. I can't keep it all in my head. So <laughs> I need something simpler. And, and for me, functional programming is much simpler. And in fact, <clears throat> uh, but it's kind of weird, right? Nobody's really talked about functional event sourcing until really just the last couple of years. Um, people have started to apply this functional programming lens to event sourcing and to distributed systems um, as a category, right? So applying these, these really simple ideas from functional programming to this event sourcing idea goes back to what we said at the beginning, right? System state is a function of all the events that have happened in the system, right? So that's that sort of left fold idea uh, or, or the reduce idea. Um, that's really from my lens. If you ask, or if you read on the internet, if you, if you know, read Martin Fowler's Blicky, or if you read, you know, a lot of the stuff that's been written about event sourcing, it really does have a, a bit of an object oriented lens on it, uh, in sort of the popular mind share. Um, but again, so there's some really great writers out there right now, um, who are talking about, uh, the decider pattern, right? So the decider pattern is this idea that there's really in most information systems, especially sort of line of business information systems, there's really only three functions that you need to write. And that governs all the business logic in your whole system. Right. And that's decide, which is, okay, the user's telling me to change state, but I don't know about that. I don't know if <laughs> the system's in the right state. I don't know if what the user's asking is reasonable. So let's, you know, let's look at the current state. Let's look at the command that they're sending us. And then we'll decide, okay, if this is a reasonable thing, we'll emit some sequence of events to be appended to our event log. If right. it's not a reasonable thing, we're going to return error and say, hey, try again, man. Like what you're asking for is not reasonable or the system's moved on or, or your your, uh, your uh, 
expectations have been violated in some way. <clears throat> so we'll give you a chance to, to reconsider this, this idea, right? So that's command. <laughs> that's really our sort of transaction processing moment right. where we can tell the user no. And we can say like, you know, we're protecting the consistency of our system here. Um, so, and, and that has a very, it's a function and it has a well-known um, signature and, and, and we understand kind of what that is, right? Yeah. Um, evolve is the second function. And that's really just the reducing function that you'd have in a left fold where you say, give me the state, give me the next event, and then I'll return you the successor state. So, right, if you start with some initial state <clears throat> and then you can just process each event with evolve in a left fold kind of way, um, that allows you to compute the state as of any sort of point in time along your event stream. So that's evolve. And that's really just about projecting these events into and building state the way that we've been describing kind of the whole podcast. Yeah. And then the last one is called react. It's a less used function, but it, it's the idea that like when some condition outside of my world or that I'm observing uh, is met, or if some condition inside my world is met, I need to take some sort of action. So this allows for sort of integration between systems, right? I'm going to observe some upstream state or, or stream of events. And then when some trigger, you know, condition is met, I'm going to issue a local command and, and do some stuff locally, or I'm going to look at my internal state. And when some condition is met, I'm going to reach out and evoke some foreign command to cause change in some other system. So that, this is the way that we sort of bridge between, um, between these event streams and between these different systems. Um, but anyway, all of that is to say, you have this little thing that has three functions in it. So you can build a functional type out of that thing. People have called it the decider. They've called it some other things too. But that, that little decider really encapsulates the entire business logic of your whole system. And so that thing, you can now do all kinds of stuff with it because this this uh, it's pure functions. It doesn't know anything about databases. It doesn't know anything about distributed systems. It doesn't know anything about event store DB or event DB or event logs or Kafka or anything, right? All it knows is just the pure business logic of the domain uh, of the business problem that you're solving. So now you can compile that down to say WebAssembly and it can run in your client and you can do all your event sourcing and deciding and yep. all that stuff in the client, writing stuff down to, you know, index DB or whatever, or you can <clears throat> compile it and run it in the server as an API. And now you have this really well-designed sort of stateful API um, that you can run, or you can uh, compile it down and run it inside of your database, like evident DB. So we can do a lot of things like that where we can start to um, build projections. So going back to a question you asked a little while back, um, what indexes do you build and can there be custom indexes? Well, um, <clears throat> we build kind of the baseline set of indexes that I described, you know, subject, stream, bitemporal. Yeah. And then uh, in the future, this is a future state of the world, um, users can provide their own code, their own deciders, their own evolve functions. And we can build projections on the fly. As new events come in, we can just run their logic you know, build up the next state, stick it in a cache someplace. And now you've got sort of this perpetual user-defined projection, which is basically the index that the user wants it to be, right? So that can run on the database right. side yeah. instead of in the user code. And so now that's very fast to query and all that kind of thing. So there's a lot we can do with that, where it's like this user-defined indexing or this user-defined materialized view, um, like you might have in a, in a relational database, 
but it's a materialized view that's just a function. It's a function in your native programming language that we've compiled to WebAssembly, and and now we can run it anywhere. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, <clears throat> sufficiently universal. It seems like a new entry into the attempt to boil down what is programming <laughs> to its simplest form. That's exactly right. It, it yeah. falls, you know, in in the the tradition of the JVM and and you know LLVM and all these really very sophisticated attempts to find the sort of universal computing paradigm. Um, yeah. WebAssembly is super interesting because it has sort of one in the sense that it's already embedded in your browser and it's already sort of in the, the platform of, of the distributing computing world, which is the, the web, right? So it's, it's in those standards. And so, you know, the JVM never got there. LLVM never got there. Um, it's this place where you can compile any language down to a, a common bytecode format. These things with the, uh, just recently in the WebAssembly world, they've crossed the, threshold into the component model, which allows you to, you know, write one of these things in Rust and one of these things in Go and one of these things in C and one of these things in Java, and uh, they can all interoperate with each other through the component model. So the, through the standard uh, bytecode interchange format. So really interesting world right now in the WebAssembly space. There's lots of really cool stuff. Um, but this idea of taking these functional programming ideas pulling from the world of event sourcing and domain-driven design, pulling from the world of Kafka and event streaming, pulling from the world of web assembly and database design. We can sort of triangulate on this really interesting set of ideas to make it very simple to write event source systems in the language of your choice with a very simple sort of infrastructure setup. You know, our goal at my company, Evidence Systems, our goal is to uh, make it so that, you know, line of business developers who are trying to build these sort of business capabilities, these APIs that encapsulate business capabilities, they should only have to write business logic. They shouldn't have to care about web requests. They shouldn't have to care about uh, databases and Kafka and distributed systems and all that kind of stuff. They should just be, you know, working with their business matter, subject matter experts and, and their product owners, and they should just be encapsulating everything that they learn in code pure yeah. stateless functional code and <laughs> and uh you know once they have that they should be able to plug that into the platform and the platform should take care of all the data persistence and all the web request handling and all that kind of nonsense right so that you can sort of facilitate teams going much faster this way right let's yeah, just focus yeah, yeah. on that business logic you don't have to be the full stack developer that has a phd in 17 different things you can just write code that encapsulates business logic and you can have these really well-defined APIs with these good characteristics and these really nice operational non-functional requirements met and all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. That'd be a nice future to get to. Yeah. Um, I think that that does leave one hole that we need to address and this could almost be a whole podcast in itself. So let me see yeah. if I can get, let me see if I can get a quick answer from you. Um, and you've hinted at this with like, we're just leaving the programmer to make decisions about the business domain. Yeah. And you've also hinted it with, we've got this ride sharing app, which is just a stream of rides and a stream of cars. There is a decision to be made in every system about mm -hmm. how to structure your events. Which events do you capture? How do you encode them? And how do you segregate them into different streams of events? Yeah. Can you give us some guidance on the design space? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the space that I've really spent the last sort of three years really diving into. Um, and my, my recent training that, that we just released with Confluent, so it's on Confluent Developer, it's called Practical Event Modeling, uh, and, and addresses exactly sort of the question you just asked, which is, you know, how do I define what an event is? How do I figure out how to structure it? All those sorts of things. The best thing that I found for doing that is a technique called event modeling. And uh, Adam Dimitrick, who's 
you know, really close with Greg Young, uh, have sort of come up together in this world of, of event source system design. He invented this technique, um, sort of related a little bit to Alberto Brandolini's uh, event storming, similar sorts of ideas, but okay. simpler and more focused on the actual system design rather than on sort of exploring the domain and problem space. So it's, you know, you can build this event model. It's a very simple sort of graphical modeling technique. You have your subject matter experts in the room. You have your product owners in the room. You have your UI designers and your architects and your data people and your security folks. They're all in the room with you sort of doing this collaborative exercise where you define out this world of, of events, right? Command, event, read model, which is like a snapshot of state and interface. <laughs> and, and you define out, you know, kind of all the interactions in the system and, uh, by capturing it sort of graphically, you just you enumerate all of the different state changes in your system. And so your whole system design is based around the state changes that that take place in it. Um, it's it's actually really interesting. One of the one of the issues that the industry has been wrestling with lately is uh, you know, on the heels of this McKinsey paper, how do you measure developer productivity? How do you measure <laughs> the contribution of a given developer? And right, McKinsey and, and their team of you know, crack consultants, they think they've cracked this code. <laughs> they know how to measure developer productivity. You know, right away, a bunch of the sort of signatories of the Agile Manifesto are like, no, you can't. Like, we, we've already gone down this road several times. You know how to measure developer activity, not yeah. developer productivity. And, the, and there's worlds apart. And anything that you measure, developers are going to game in order to make themselves seem more productive and, and get the raise that they need to feed their family. Right. So like you, you can't equate productivity and activity when you've designed the system in terms of the state changes on the event model, you can break this model down into what we call slices, which is basically like, okay, here's one state change. User clicks something on a user interface. It issues this command that gets handled by our web tier. And then we record this event to our event store. That slice is a state change. It has a concrete, well-defined business value. You should be able to, after you've done this for a while, your development team should be able to say like, okay, this is going to take us two days because we've done a thousand of these state changes in the past and they all take about two days. So now you can really start to hone in on, here's the cost for this slice. Here's the value or the business benefit of this slice. And now you can start to make real business decisions around developer productivity, which features should we tackle first, which features should we cut, when should we stop developing, you know, all these really hard kind of engineering management questions that we've tried to answer over the years and we've had lots of different answers for and Agile tries to handle them some ways and Waterfall tries to handle them other ways um, by having a design. And by having that design really define the value of your information system in terms of its state changes and its state views and its inter interactions with other systems, well, now you can really assign pretty concrete value to each one of these slices and you can break these slices down. So the event model, to answer your original question, yes, it contributes immensely to the proper design and discovery of what events happen, how do we group them into streams and so forth. If you do my training on Confluent Developer, It'll take you through that process and it'll show you how we designed Autonomo using this, this process. And it'll show you kind of each step okay. of the way of Worked how we refine out that. Yeah, it's, it's a working yeah. example. So we start with that example in the very first uh, module and then we take it all the way through. So it helps to, to arrive at the proper system design. But furthermore, by making that system design kind of the contract that we're all working towards, it actually gives a lot of these management benefits, right? So product owners can see what they're going to get 
managers are going to see, you know, here's a clear estimation of when we're going to get each of these things. And here's the ones that are done. And here's the ones that we're still working on and whatever. So in terms of IT management and, you know, having a good working relationship with the business stakeholders, um, event modeling is, is the best thing that I've found for both designing the system and managing its, its delivery. Okay. Okay. I, um, I, I feel like I'd need to go through that a few times myself to believe you, but I want to believe you. And, Absolutely. Uh, no, I'm it's a big claim. It's a big claim. Do not take my word for it, please. Like, go, you know, the, the training that I do is great. Adam, um, Dimitrix's website, uh, eventmodeling.org is great. You can go on there and he has a lot of resources, uh, in there, but you know, this is something that I'm doing with customers right now and showing them how to both design these systems and manage their delivery this way. And it's, it's given huge benefits. So for me, this is like, this is it. This is all I'm going to use for the rest of my career. I found kind of the way to, you know, it doesn't, it's not a silver bullet. There's no silver bullets in engineering, but in terms of, um, business information systems, I think we've sort of cracked a bit of the code of, of how to quantify and enumerate the business value, how to gather the requirements, how to properly design out the system in terms of its state changes, and how to transcribe that visual diagram into code using those techniques that I described, you know, the decider and, and some of these other things. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of value there. And look, it doesn't apply to every type of software, right? You can't write a compiler this way. You can't write a video game this way. You can't write a you know graphics processing engine this way, right? It's not a software design pattern. It's really a business information systems design pattern, which is a small, small subset of kind of the software world. But but for that small subset, man, event modeling, functional event sourcing, hard to beat those two things in, uh, in 2023. So. <laughs> I think I'm going to leave you on that campaign slogan. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. Functional <laughs> yeah. domain modeling. Yeah. Love it. Bobby, thanks very much for taking us through it. That was a lot of fun. Chris, thank you so much. Happy to join you. And hey, if we have to do another you know, podcast to really dig into the nitty gritty, I'm happy to do it. Excellent. Thank you very much. We'll see you again <laughs> soon. Thanks, Chris. Bye. Thank you, Bobby. You know, one thing I think we will have to do a follow-up episode on is using event-based systems for building user interfaces. I think it's a great way to structure UIs and as I said, it's how I got started down the event systems rabbit hole. I may have biases here, but I love it. And I'd like to find a way to share that with you. But until such an episode, if you want to find out more about event systems in general, you'll find links to all the things we talked about in the show notes, as usual. If you're wondering where to find the show notes, they're just down there, down in your app, suspiciously close to the like and subscribe buttons and the share and rate buttons, all those lovely little feedback mechanisms in general. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to send some feedback my way before you head off. And head off, we both must. So until next week, I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with Bobby Calderwood. Thanks for listening. 